What's your introduction? Um, I have a letter to Brooke Rogers at my address from next year. (laughs) Because I lied. Because I wasn't sure if they would give me a test. I don't know why, but I was like, are they going to give me a test? They know that I'm not from Phoenix. So I gave them your mom's address. What does it say on the inside? Is it a bill? Well, I'm... I don't know yet because I'm committing a federal crime right now, opening your mail without permission. So oh yeah, I didn't even say you could. Bad. Here we go. Bad yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a bill. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, I'm gonna let my insurance yeah. deal with that. <laughs> and honestly, no, kind of relevant um, to the episode too. Yeah, it is. So we're talking about opioids today, and we want everyone to know that when you get a bill from a healthcare provider, don't pay it immediately because sometimes it has to go through insurance a couple times to get knocked down on the price so just know that um i have like a 186 dollar lab test bill that's been sitting in my insurance situation for like nine months now and i probably like i should probably have paid it by now but i'm kind of just like now you want to go for broke so to speak um yeah i mean see what happens as soon as they tell me they're going to turn it over to creditors, then I'll pay it. But right now I'm like, my, it, like it, it takes, it takes a while. It takes like a couple times of it appealing your insurance and then it going through or not going through. Right. So I'm just wait. I'm just waiting this one out. Um, I think that's smart. Um, it'll be here when you need it. <laughs> um, but this is exceedingly persuasive and I'm Mackenzie Brennan. And I'm Brooke Rogers. And I am apparently now $119 in debt to Next Care Urgent Care in Phoenix, Arizona. Resident of Phoenix, Arizona. Here's to that. (laughs) Cheers. Okay. Well, I will, yeah. Financial stuff is scary. Maybe one day I'll pay my taxes. But until I understand it, I refuse. I'm not filing. Uh, Yeah. Every year around tax season, I become a sovereign citizen for about three months. It's just yeah super conv- it's crazy how that timing syncs up it's just coincidental though it's I not mean. because of tax season it's because no. of, it's the springtime tradition for myself it. i think that yeah, it's important for to your culture assert your freedoms once a year and it just happens to be it's a religious choice time. because honestly like religions get handled better than people in this country so i'm gonna say that it's a religious choice not paying my taxes um but it's against <laughs> my religion filing your taxes uh is against the religion that you just made up just now which is just as valid oh, not as just now other. i've been practicing it my whole life so and we're gonna incorporate soon and then we'll be doubly tough llc so. that bitch uh-huh. Just you wait. Um, I'll be untouchable. No, I actually, I actually do file my taxes, and I have by m- myself uh, since I was eighteen. Um, and I sometimes even get money back. So when I don't freelance, uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely um, paid more than Trump. The honestly, right? Isn't that crazy? How most of us have. Um, 
Well, that that is going to be a thing that we can do this year because of our new Patreon, which um, I actually wasn't looking for an excuse to plug this up top, but now I will. Now we got so one, baby. You, you have to say it now. So hit us up on Patreon at patreon.com slash exceedingly persuasive. And uh, we just ordered some nice little New Year's cards to thank you guys for being our friends. Mackenzie ordered uh, cards that she designed herself. They look very nice. And mm. also stickers. So Also stickers. And um, we're actually recording a bonus episode soon about um, Martin Shkreli so, and some goings-on in his personal Listen, life. You so know. you want to know about that. You want to hear <laughs> us talk about the woman who fell in love oh. with and then was – Fell in love with Martin Scarelli while she was covering him for Bloomberg News. Don't give away the whole story. I have to tease it, though, because then You have she, to. I mean, it's juicy. The, it was a whirlwind romance that ended up yeah, with we'll her see. doing an entire profile on Elle. Um, Mackenzie <laughs> had had a brush with Martin Scarelli in the New York City courtroom that she worked at. So we've got inside knowledge. Also, um, we love... And I also fell in love with of, him, obviously. I mean, how could oh, you, you not did? with that? Don't, don't drop that news on me now. Yes, um, and I'm actually leaving you for Martin Shkreli, even <laughs> though our friendship does not require me to. I, that's the commitment that I have to him. So We have some sort of legal thing going on now. We're spouses somehow. Yeah, so yeah. I want to make a, a gesture to him that I'm leaving you for him, just to show my love. Yeah, see, that's... He's an I, important I, guy. You know, for, for the podcast. Do it for the content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, exactly, like she did. <laughs> anyway, um, if you want to hear us talk about that, there's going to be a yeah. bonus episode that we release in the At next couple of weeks. Greater, uh, drunker length. On Patreon, so you gotta, you got to yeah. do it. you got to sign up for it. Um, we're also yeah, going to start doing like a monthly gross. stream. We're still figuring out how we're going to do that on uh, behind a... Uh, you know, for secret for secret purposes, we had to do it behind the <laughs> password. I don't know why I said it like that. A covert. Co- no, I like covert it. Like for agent. secret purposes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But we're gonna start doing monthly streams as well that are going to be only on Patreon, uh, and we're gonna start releasing episodes a couple days early on Patreon as well, depending on what tier yeah, you're in. It'll be a fun, sexy so time. It'll fun, be really exciting. Um, so not only yeah. do you get stickers, there are other things like hearing our voices more. And who doesn't want that? Oh, God. What a dream. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know I love it. (laughs) Oh, I love listening to myself talk in this little chirp that I have. Um, Let's start chirping. Let's go to Chirp Town. Um, So the headline headline we're working this episode off of is the Department of Justice sued Walmart for for contributing to the opioid crisis. Um, Walmart pharmacies are distributors of opioids, and the substance of the DOJ complaint was that they had been irresponsible in how they uh, doled out and filled prescriptions of certain doctors that were suspicious and did not report suspicious orders to the DEA as they should have. Yeah, and we can, we'll get in a little later to, like, what pharmacists are supposed to do and, and kind of, like, who is actually to blame, what can providers or prescribers or patients do in these sort of circumstances. Um, honestly, like, spoiler alert, I think a lot of this comes down to, uh, like, trying to, just like the legislation that has been passed beforehand, it's a lot of, like, scrambling after the fact to try to cover their asses for something that already went wrong and have somebody to blame for it when it's like 
it's a systemic problem. The harm is done for the most part. And the only way to fix it is like long-term systemic incremental sort of like nuance change, not just we're going to ban this and we're going to sue you. And like mm-hmm. it, it, that doesn't fix anything at this point, in my opinion, <laughs> like I accountability that- is cool. And if there's more money going to families. No, absolutely. I think that the, we don't, although we don't have completely up-to-date numbers, more than 515,000 Americans have died of opioid drug overdoses since 2006. Again, that number was, uh, Mm -hmm. that number was in 2018. So there's been two years between now and then. Maybe going, yeah. No, it absolutely has in the last couple of years. Yeah, because, because a lot of the prescribing practices have changed a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And we go into that more, if you want to check out um, episode 12, I believe, we talked a little bit about the origins of the crisis, um, some of the reactions. Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family's um, yeah. contributions to the crisis, how their negligence arguably caused the crisis, or at least threw gasoline on a fire. Definitely. And, and kind of like other coinciding factors, like um, one thing that I didn't know until we had talked about this with my mom for the last opioid episode was that in the 90s, pain was added as another vital sign that healthcare providers have to look after, which on the one hand is great because you hear a lot of times how women, people of color, um, overweight people, that their symptoms and comfort are often overlooked by healthcare providers because of existing biases. So it's, it's a nice idea to be considering patients' comfort as a top priority. But it was something that was kind of exploited by pharmaceutical brands because we have a privatized for-profit healthcare mm-hmm. industry. So like there's always somebody to exploit. That's why the problem I think comes down to if you have a system, just like with Shkreli, where mm-hmm. somebody can exploit and profit big time at someone else's expense, um, right. it doesn't matter that the expense to someone else is not staying healthy because yeah. it's money making. And you can kind of see, I mean, there's a reason why the saying is money is the root of all evil. You can see how, if you look back, um, and again, go back and listen to that episode if you're more interested in the Sackler family specifically, but the this is actually the logical conclusion of a, of a profit-driven yeah. system. The, Honestly. At the beginning of the opioid crisis, when, when the Sackler family, when, when, these, when these drugs were being put on the market, uh, the Sackler family was allegedly misleading to uh, doctors. They said that it was it was less addictive than it actually was. They also rewarded doctors for pushing the drug, for prescribing drugs that were highly addictive, and then covered up their tracks as the opioid crisis began to spin out of control. So when the motivation is to make money, and that's why you know when you're looking at a, a for-profit system or a quote-unquote free market system over a nationalized healthcare system. In a nationalized healthcare system, the goal is actually to be as efficient as possible and to make people healthier so they don't have to utilize the system as much. So in certain and more places- more room for oversight too. Absolutely. Because you think of like, if, it were, if the government was the entity being held accountable, you're damn mm-hmm. right, they would be putting these schedules in place and they would have the power to too, because right. private industry does have a lot more freedom. I mean, we, I was making the joke about like, oh, if I'm a corporation, I'll, I'll have more freedom, but it's true. Um, yeah, no, no, corporations absolutely do. Closed doors. Yeah. In many cases, corporations have more freedom than individuals. And certainly, um, <laughs> you know, when we're discussing accountability, especially, it's not a secret in our country that 
politicians are not always held accountable for their actions and our state isn't always held accountable for its actions. But there is more room for accountability there. You do have more power in a democracy, as flawed as ours may be, to ask for what you want. And if you're not, if you're not getting what you need out of your system, you have a direct line to the person responsible for that. You can go to your representative and, like and say, regulatory this is what needs to change. Stuff. Yeah, yeah like regulatory schemes, you think about like CDC and FDA stuff, kind of like we were talking about with the vaccines episode last time, that there are just these um, not politicized, but government affiliated oversight systems with a lot of those like public run healthcare sort mm-hmm. of things that there are just a lot more checks and even things like freedom of information requests that you can do a FOIA request for data and studies, uh, you can formalize, because one thing that we also discussed at more length in the last episode is the the difficulty that we've been left with, both with panic legislation that isn't really tailored to fix the epidemic now, and some of the issues that still have not been fixed with how the industry is regulated. Like, we had listened to an NPR interview with a doctor who actually also ended up getting addicted to opioids after... Mm-hmm. Uh, a terrible injury. And he was saying that as he went through the process of trying to wean himself as a healthcare provider, he was realizing that none of his prescribers and none of his colleagues had been trained in weaning. And yeah. that, that wasn't a requirement for anybody to be certified. Um, and that, in fact, very few people wanted to touch it because of liability. Um, because if they were involved, then they're involved if something bad happens. And mm-hmm. then... On the flip side, my mom saying that when she has tried to prescribe um, opioids to somebody who's dependent on opioids already and has injuries on their abdomen, I think was our example, where she like was cut in the front, she had a wound in the front, and her spine was also cut. And so my mom prescribed it a higher dosage and got like a notice letter from the board that she was over-prescribing. And it's like, well, yeah, no kidding. If you want this person be comfortable with the drug that actually does help this kind of patient. Mm-hmm. There's no room for that either. So it yeah. really is a poorly tailored solution that we've come up yeah. with. Um, and in these cases, patients become the last priority, right? Because when you're yeah. so afraid of liabilities and lawsuits and, uh, and, uh, money incentives, m- like- money incentives, and also, you know, being held liable uh, criminally, then you are going to prioritize your own personal concerns as a, as a, as a prescriber over the patient. Hospitals are private too, you know, like they're also corporations half the time who want to look after their financial, their profit margins as well. Yeah. And and there's also when we're we're discussing accountability, you know, one thing that just, just by removing uh, that profit incentive by removing the for-profit sector entirely, you can see how much money Big Pharma spends lobbying yeah. con- uh, members of Congress. They absolutely yeah. have their tentacles wrapped around people who should be representing Americans as individuals and, and yeah. as, as uh, patients. So if you remove that entirely, Representatives are much more concerned, more democratic control, and representatives are much more concerned uh, making their constituents happy and making sure that they have Mm -hmm. access to quality healthcare over making these um, giant pharmaceutical companies happy. And yeah, the argument against nationalizing healthcare often comes down to um, when people, a lot of people will say like, well, the free market provides options. But if you look at how those options have played out, we have 
medical debt, insane deductibles, um, high premiums, uh, limited access to care. You have people avoiding going to the doctor because they're afraid they won't be able to cover their bills. Um, The, you Mm -hmm. know, the price of drugs is through the roof. The for-profit companies have um, all the discretion in the world when it comes to setting prices. And that's what we saw with, uh, speaking of good old farmer bro, Mark Martin Scully. I know, right? It yeah. He, he put an insanely unethically high price on, um, an AIDS medication. And that's kind of the, what started, uh, the, the, the like generalized hate for him. Markup. Yeah. But yeah. That's, it was like a, a hundreds of percentage markup on a, a very effective HIV treatment medication. And, I think that goes along with a lot of drugs and alternative funding sort of options. And I think it it even goes hand in hand with why the opioid crisis has gotten so far Yeah, because things like physical therapy, Mm -hmm. like, um, surgery, like coverage, decrease pain research and funding for medical research for pain treatment alternatives, like, you know, medical marijuana. Um, obviously there are other, there's so many other options that I'm not even, uh, equipped to be aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. But if we were putting money there and taking private money out of this weird incentive push and pull of who should be looking into what, there might be other alternative treatments that are financially viable for people who Mm -hmm. get onto opioids because honestly, and this is another tricky thing to navigate, the reason they exist and the reason that they're on the market is that they're incredibly effective and necessary for people who are dealing with certain high pain situations. Yeah. Um, you see it a lot with, in fact, my mom has kept a prescription bottle because this is what happens when you live in a physician's household. (laughs) Um, my mom has a prescription for an opioid that was written for my uncle Stuart in 1988 in our medicine cabinet in case. I'm sure it's still good. I'm sure it's still fine. Right. (laughs) I mean, like that's the, the people going through, pain for whether it be cancer, whether it be, you know, major injury. I know that my cousin was prescribed it after her spinal surgery mm-hmm. uh, with, with no issues, but it certainly helped her deal with very yeah. severe pain symptoms while they existed. So yeah. we, we can't get rid of it. We can't make it totally inaccessible, but there has to be more guardrails. Yeah. There has to be more accountability for these, for these companies and again, it's when profit is at the heart of it, patients are going to be put last. That's kind and... of the problem. Uh, but like you can ban it, you can ban everything till the cows come home. It won't do anything but hurt the people who actually need it and potentially mm-hmm. the providers who are prescribing it to people who need it. But what actually is going to fix the situation and even things like drug treatment, like um, insurance coverage, say for people who need help getting off of these medications yeah. because they have formed a habit to them. Yeah. But like... They're, but they're not easy solutions to implement. They're not going to show an immediate, like, look what we did. We did a big sweeping change, not which is absolutely. kind of what people want to advertise in political settings. And I think that um, do- doctors who are overprescribing opioids are incentivized by profit as well because they – a lot of times, and the Zachary family did this in the beginning of the opioid crisis, like I said before, mm-hmm. they are rewarding doctors for for – pushing this drug and many, and so like it's you. Yeah. For some private industry. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So that's a big carrot. And if there's no stick, if there's no, like, if there's yeah. no consequence for your actions Honestly. when you're overprescribing, that's going right. to put them in a bad position and to put patients in a bad position. Yeah. And I think maybe this is a good time to talk about, um, the, the actual 
checks in place for pharmacists because Mm -hmm. like I said at the beginning, I do feel like, and we'll see how this DOJ suit goes. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily opposed to it being seen through and honestly, like, fuck Walmart. So no, 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 yeah. Them, like to see them suffer for anything. I'm like, yeah, sure. Fine. I mean, sure. To be completely if money comes out of their pocket. The, the, the bottom sense, line of this podcast is fuck Walmart. Like truly we're not at no point so many to, are we concerned right. for the Walmart's well-being. It's yeah. Um, that company can do. I want them to win this care. suit? No, I really no. don't care. Um, and, and that's uh, the the heart of the suit is um, they are trying to get them to uh, pay fu- pay fees for every uh, prescription that, that was filled that was inappropriately prescribed. So every time that, that they so filled, to measure. Oh, absolutely! But it's it's in the tens of thousands of dollars. But you're gonna have to have a case by case hearing on each instance, because even like we said in that last episode with my mom prescribing for that woman, it's like how even a meritorious prescription, you'd have to be like, well, this was her injury here. And this was the dosage that she said she was taking in abusive context. And these are records of the prescriptions that she had in the past. And this was the other injury. And here were the dates. Like that honestly is a case by case inquiry that is going to take more Rag money out than it's worth. Years. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my God. But, um, so yeah, two things that we can talk about off of this, like, should pharmacies who, and people who prescribed this be held accountable, or I guess more filled the prescriptions, be held mm-hmm. accountable, um, is what oversight is there or was there also at the time on pharmacists actually filling prescribers' prescriptions, and then also some kind of double-edged swords that even though, fuck Walmart, and I would love to see them pay just because it brings me glee, um, and also if it brings any peace or, like, financial recompense to families who are grieving, like, that's also good. But on top of that, there's a possibility of it setting a dangerous or weird precedent by holding pharmacies accountable when there are already a lot of, like, unnecessary hurdles to getting medications mm-hmm. um, that, like... This is labeled a controlled substance. I One of the antidepressants that I'm on is also labeled a controlled substance, and it's really difficult to get. Mm-hmm. And the kind of thing that they'll do to fix this problem is, like, let's make it harder to get that one. When yeah. I already have to pay, like, $90 every three months to reconfirm the prescription for that and my heart medication that I've been on for, like, almost 10 years, same yeah. dosage. And so it's, like what is this actually going to fix? And then things that really should be over the counter in terms of risk. Like I know you and I have talked about women's health medications, like birth control. Why isn't birth control over the counter? Why isn't it over the counter? Antibiotics for UTIs that people often can recognize this, but there's this like unnecessary pharmacy hurdle because why everything's for profit. And that's the only reason. Yeah, I mean, especially with things like birth control, I think there's a double. So there's the with, with everything in the medical, oh, sure. uh, in, in in the healthcare industry, you have the profit incentive, right? There's the um, yes, you, you put these barriers up. You have to go back to your doctor. That then you know you have to pay a copay and they bill your insurance. They have that to make visit. money off of you. And on top of that, you know, then you prescribe the new drug and then you pay whatever copay on top of that for the, for the drug. And then mm-hmm. they, your insurance pays for the drug, which is for usually astronomical yeah. prices because they can set it however high they want. And, but with birth control specifically, yeah. and this is sort of a little, this is just my soapbox. If you yeah. are a woman in this country, 
especially when it comes to issues of sexuality, they just try to put every roadblock. They, they want to have absolutely a, a quote unquote adult. They want to have someone else check ev- at every step of the way. That's why IUDs are so hard to get. That's why it's so hard to be approved for hysterectomies or getting your you know, getting your tubes tied. That's why it's so hard to um, like even like the the length of time for an IUD. It's in some places. I've had friends and family tell me how they went to go get an IUD. And they, if they didn't have a child already, they would be um, advised from getting it because the doctor would say, well, you might change your mind about having a baby soon. You don't want to, you know, which also, by the way, term. yeah, IUDs are removable and have to be replaced often for that type of term anyway. So there's really no reason not to get it because of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's the beauty of the IUD. But like, you're absolutely right. And even things like, um, religious corporation employers, for example, like Hobby Lobby being the immortal example of like, they can decide not to cover this healthcare cost for their employees because they as a corporation have a human religious belief as a corporate entity. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, obviously there's that yeah. problem. But then you think about what sort of things are um, over the counter mm-hmm. in pharmacies and you have cold medicines that both can be stimulants or depressants, neurological mm-hmm. depressants. Um, Benadryl is a sleeping medication. And then non-drug things like alcohol can be purchased super easily. It's like, yeah, is something that I can take, especially after the first prescription, like once right. you have the consult about, do you get blood clots, things like that. Exactly. That really need to be behind a prescribing wall all the time. Um, um, no, actually, and this then is a good reaction. It, for yeah. just for the purposes of women who uh, women and trans men who listen to this podcast, um, anyone with a uterus, if you are having trouble accessing birth control, so just mm. personal story time. I uh, a prescription of mine ran out, but no one alerted me that it was running out uh, for birth control. I had no idea that I wouldn't be able to get it filled. I went to the pharmacy um, to get. I, I called ahead and said, like, asked to make sure that it was refilled. I show up. They say. Well, there's two problems. The first is that your prescription has expired and you have to call your doctor and ask them to, to refill it. And the second is that um, there's a shortage of this particular birth control pill. And in, our, in your area, it's really slow getting in. And the alternative that we usually give is also out. We can't, you don't have it. And I was like, well, is there any other like generic form of this? Like there's nothing that's going like, to stop you getting pregnant. Yeah. Like yeah. you have nothing back there. I see. Uh, uh-huh. And they were like, well, we have to, we have to consult with your doctor. So you're gonna have to call them. So I call my doctor and I'm like, <gasps> first of all, I didn't know this prescription was going out. Can you just re, can you resign it? Like, no, you have to come in for another visit. Um, so what I did was I filled a prescription through this place called, I believe it's called NURKS. It's a website. It's N-U-R-X. Uh, I filled out a little form. I put my blood pressure in. I oh, checked. like new RX. Oh, ha-ha. I said NERX, but it is new RX. Thank you. Like new metal. But with new, okay. Okay, so new RX. You got it. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I would recommend it. They, I, I had to pay more in copay than I, because like usually it's free. Usually my birth control is free. Um, they did take insurance, but oh, there was great. still a small fee that I had to pay for like a, the consultation and then the prescription itself. But overall, I think everything ended up being like 50 bucks and I got three months of the, uh, pill that oh, I had been taking good. before. Yeah. And so this was a complete lifesaver for me because like, because the healthcare system sucks and I couldn't get in and I, and I, I was blindsided by this shortage. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you need that, if you need, and they, they you also, had no warning of. 
Exactly. If you didn't I get warned it. of the shortage or your expiration of prescription because that's not part of the regulations that they put in place to make it so difficult. Yeah. And I had like, one pill left in my pack that. when this all happened. So I was like, wow, I am screwed. Like, and then is- it's your fault because oftentimes I've gotten these kind of paternalistic um, slaps on the wrist. Like, well, I mean, these kind of things take more time. So you should have come in early. It's like, I didn't know this was a problem. I'm sorry. I'm flawed. Also, stop I'll be so even hard more emotional and this. dumb. I, I should know. be able to show, it should be over the counter. I should be able to show up and say, this is what well, I need. Actually, yeah. And get it. And uh, new RX, by the way, they, they did like, you do thought a form and then there's a, there's a, a doctor that will prescribe you what they think is best for you. It, there is a process to go through, but it's really easy and simple and I, I can't recommend it and more. Can be done I have it now. So that's awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, this last cycle, I had to actually, for similar reasons, get my mom to prescribe it for me, which is something that she's, she's comfortable with me saying that because she can prescribe, but there's a lot of scrutiny for people prescribing to their family members for obvious sure. reasons. So she doesn't like to do it unless we really need to. But same deal. My GYN didn't have an annual checkup appointment within the period that I was going to need the renewal and they need you to come in annually if they're going to prescribe it to you, which like, I get it for women's health stuff that sometimes you need exams, but damn, when I was, um, I studied abroad in Italy when I was in college and forgot my birth control there. And I panicked because I was used to this system. Yeah. For all the people say about socialized medicine, um, I went to, the Italian professor that I had there and I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't speak enough Italian to like see a doctor here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really hard to call my mom. She probably can't prescribe out of the country. And uh, she was like, Oh, it's over the counter. Just go. So Um, I went to like the pharmacia and they held up different brands and I was like, Oh yeah, that one. And they just sold it to me. Yeah. And that was was over the counter there. Well, (gasps) butrin. You can get, <laughs> get antidepressants over the counter in Italy. I know that oh, for a fact because when we were there, we had to. So, yeah, uh, there's lots of so, lots like, of perks of living. I literally in, in bought self-care. like three boxes, and I still have some, which probably are expired, so I don't like to take them. But I because I had, I had to take expired PTSD, ones. I hoard right. medicine. Yeah, it, I mean, my mom well, was joking which is about insane. the whole. Like, we shouldn't have to. We keep Stuart's medicine. Like we keep yeah. Stuart's opioids from the 80s but it's like you know what everything is so difficult to get now that like we're keeping everything and it's better than nothing if somebody breaks their leg and can't get into the dock I don't know yeah no for emergencies so, but like why do we yeah. live in we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world yep. why do we exist in a system where access to healthcare is so difficult that we're hoarding birth control and pain I, yeah, I have a medicine bag in my closet at home with like a little latch on it in case I ever need to break into my store. And sometimes I'll renew things if I have insurance coverage and be like, just as a little treat, I'll get myself an extra beta blocker heart medicine for this month in case I need it in the future. We're lucky because we usually are covered with, like we usually do have insurance. Yeah. We usually do have healthcare. Most people don't. Like most people don't have consistent health coverage. And so like I am- And yeah. if I have a gap, I can't go on my mom's cause I'm over 26 now. It's insane. So anyway, back to back to the heart of this matter. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that it's all really relevant because yeah. there are reasons why, because I think we talk more at length about panic legislation and how it was also a big thing with like crack cocaine and targeting one type of drug versus the other that um, 
when people try to retroactively fix a crisis in a way that gets them good publicity and political senses, and honestly in private senses too a bit, um, there's a push, especially when lobbyists from the private industry are pushing against things that actually would fetter them, um, the, the politicians want to do something fast that appears to address the problem, but they don't necessarily consult experts. They don't mm -hmm. think about um, other side effects. And so if you think about places like Walmart, or honestly, let's put a different name on it, the five-star pharmacy down the street being held sure. accountable for um, prescribing this medication, you have to think, well, we don't apply that to gun manufacturers, which honestly, I think we should, mm -hmm. um, if they manufacture or sell guns that and in the loss of life and are not responsibly checked. We didn't do it for mortgage lenders and banks in the housing crisis for irresponsibly allowing people to do things. Um, we probably won't do it for people who profited off the COVID crisis um, or exploited people to their own financial gain in that context. So mm -hmm. we have to change everything, which is not gonna be an overnight sexy solution and it's gonna face a lot of blowback yeah. Or it's not going to be effective and it'll have these really negative side effects. Um, no, absolutely. To keep in, in theme. With the, with the DOJ lawsuit against Walmart specifically, to be clear, they're not suing individual pharmacists. They're suing the distributor itself, which is right. Walmart. And I think that's important to which know. Which is like the gun manufacturer. No, absolutely. Um, one thing that so, – so I actually went into this thinking um, when we first started talking about covering this episode, I actually – kind of disagreed with suing Walmart. I mean, and again, like, fuck Walmart. I don't mm. really care about them. Right, it's that. kind of a tough thing because it's like, fuck Walmart. I don't yeah, care. <laughs> because in my, my first instinct was, well, they're just filling the orders and it's the doctors mm -hmm. who are prescribing them. And then, you know, that comes down to like a weird kind of ethical question of how often can... And who's most qualified to check, yeah. Absolutely. How often can pharmacists, individual pharmacists step in what discretion should they have over uh, which patients get medication and which uh, which orders yeah, they that fill? Because can be annoying too. It can I be can annoying see and if also too much oversight. Being like, okay, but I am the one who went to schooling to do this, and let me mm -hmm. explain to you why this patient has some different need or why right. this. It would just gum up everything. And as a patient, you know, you go through all this trouble of going to the doctor getting the prescription, going, and then yeah. suddenly a pharmacist can tell you, no, I'm not going to fill this out. Like, I can understand can you why. Now. It's like, no, I saw the doctor. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw an expert, and they said this is fine. But Give me my birth control. <laughs> give it to me. One thing that mm -hmm. changed my mind was that, in this case specifically, there were, um, according to the DOJ complaint, uh, there had been um, many instances where pharmacists had reported suspicious orders, mm. uh, you know, to, to fill suspicious prescriptions up their chain of command and said, this doctor is overprescribing. It's very obvious. There's misconduct involved here. And mm. Walmart did nothing about it. And to me, that does add a layer huh. of probability where um, pharmacists are flagging these, these issues and saying, you know, obviously the system is being abused here. Obviously these patients should not be getting these, like, in, you know, very high number of, you know, either very high dosage or, um, being overprescribed this prescription and they, and they have concerns and they're yeah. feeding it up the command chain and Walmart says, well, we're getting money. So whatever, we don't give a shit. Um, and that, that's me like, does the corporations really good. 
Well, it, the corporation's really the only one after, because then on the pharmacist side, if you are reporting it as appropriate, um, what more can you do? Because I don't think there are a lot of, for good reason, because mm -hmm. of these like weird morality complexes that you get, especially with women's health or mental health or things like that, that if you allow pharmacists to decide that they don't want to fill something, I think that, that can be a very dangerous, slippery slope. And honestly, um, they're not as qualified as the people licensed to prescribe to make those decisions. So it's like, if yeah. you're reporting up the, the appropriate chain, and then it's the the corporation with power to do more that doesn't act, then it really is a, a, a problem with the corporation. And one thing that I didn't know about, which kind of gives a good picture of what is within pharmacists and pharmacies control is, uh, th so there are these things called prescription monitoring programs in most, if not all states, because the state control is another issue. And when you think of things like states' rights and federalism, the fact that we have all these different systems makes it very difficult to control for a lot of these problems. But a lot of states have these PMPs, and it's for pharmacists in a kind of uniform, uh, digitalized way to keep track of things like overprescribing and report to a database that is accessible to prescribers. So it's educational rather than punitive. And it's so prescribers can see um, the example that my mom gave me was if two doctors, like if a patient is going to two different doctors to get pain medication, you can see like, oh, this patient was prescribed this from this guy on this mm -hmm. date. And then he went to a, a podiatrist and got the same medication. And then he went to like a neurological doctor to get the same... Like, so he's getting the same thing that I just prescribed from two other sources within the month. Right. That's maybe a problem. And then you can see if there are other drugs that they've been prescribed from specialists that might interact poorly. So the pharmacist is kind of a check on that to see if they're getting what is considered weird dosage. But then it's not an immediate thing that the pharmacist then decides whether to withhold or not, but they report it in an educational way to prescribers and then they have the option if it goes on of alerting the licensing board who then would have more power mm -hmm. to talk to the prescribers and sanction them potentially themselves but um it's not like an immediate pharmacist decision it's it kind of refers it to the appropriate authority right. so i wonder how that point of information that everyone can draw yeah. from to get a better picture of um what a, where what a patient needs it's a great idea Absolutely. It seems like a very good thing, um, but I wonder with individual pharmacists versus like, did that exist here? Was it that Walmart maybe didn't emphasize its pharmacists taking part in that? Because obviously that could be a big problem if people who are the last check on that mm -hmm. sort of thing aren't doing it yeah. um, or aren't encouraged to do it. Uh, then or if there's yeah. just a culture of nothing will happen yeah, if you don't flag these. And it's like, all right, uh, these why? prescriptions. Nothing. Yeah, no, or, or like, or if they're actively discouraged because they see that even the when money, they right. push it up the chain, nothing happens. Um, that that yeah. there's no that they won't be reprimanded for uh, individual pharmacists won't be reprimanded by the distributors for uh, fulfilling these suspicious orders. And also, yeah. it's kind of you know it's pointless because even if they do report the orders it goes up the chain, nothing happens, uh, and, and how We they... want to make sales, so yeah. careful what you report. Yeah, Again, like I could see that being a... the, the, When profit is the end goal of all of these, exactly. probably the end motive here. So mm -hmm. um, one thing that the uh, DOJ said specifically in the 
in the suit. Um, Walmart, so Walmart's own pharmacist reported concerns about the doctor off the corporate train, but for years, Walmart did nothing except to continue to dispense thousands of opioid pills. Uh, they also um, said that they knowingly filled thousands of controlled substance prescriptions that were not issued for legitimate medical purposes or in the usual course of medical practice, and that Walmart filled prescriptions outside of the ordinary co course of pharmacy practice. So there, that is hinting at um, just a, a, a culture of carelessness when it comes to um, filling these orders, filling these prescriptions out that, you know, of course, this is from the DOJ who has, uh, who has a motivation to and it's paint also them really as a bad guy, but still. Legalese type yeah. standard. Like when you say things like usual course of medical practice, what that comes down to, because in reality and in legalese, I think probably appropriately, but again, answer isn't so simple, mm -hmm. but like, what does that mean? Um, yeah. And I think what it would come down to is, is one side giving their medical experts and then the other side says, well, here are six other experts from our side who say that yeah. it is normal practice to fill and it becomes like that case by case sort of thing. It's like, well, was this one wrong? Yeah. Because um, you can't just say that this milligram dosage cutoff is not regular medical practice because it right. does vary. It's a human industry. Um, so, and, and I don't know what to do with that information. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that the DOJ is right or wrong, but um, it's just like, I don't, you know, you hear things and you have opinions on them and ultimately... <laughs> As a that's lawyer, whole, that's the whole substance of this podcast. We hear things and we have opinions on them. We hear things, we have opinions on them, and then ultimately we're like, I don't even know if my opinions are right because I am a lawyer who comes from a family of physicians, and I'm hearing this, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know who should be accountable. Like, I but honestly, I do don't think know. that um, this is th this lawsuit is part of uh, a, a shift at the DOJ where they're trying yeah. to crack down the opioid crisis by going after doctors who are prescribed and distributors who fill prescription orders in irresponsible ways. And that is better than criminalizing people who have addiction to opioids. And if that well, is if how- that's the binary. I mean, it, it is better. Mm -hmm. But I but do I wonder, know, like- What's the solution to the opioid crisis if not going after uh, doctors who are- you know, uh, being unethical. I think that's already happened. So I think that distributors, certainly, I think that's an easier one because places like the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, um, that they always were in the wrong. But in terms of things that will be enacted as like essentially punitive measures for what happened in the past, but against people going forward, I worry about the the side effects of that type of panic legislation against a problem that, at least from what I've seen, and even the fact that every year going forward for the last five years or so, the numbers have been going down. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like prescription abuses, that I wonder if we if we act like treating that problem is effective and where we should be putting our energy, and like it is a fix at all. We're going to lose sight of what actually will fix these type of things in future and the fact that the problem is not necessarily what it was 10 years ago, but it's a systemic problem that'll allow this to happen maybe in a slightly different way with a different medication in future. Because mm -hmm. it's already so difficult to prescribe opioids um, because of the backlash to this that I don't think, I think we're fine in terms of cracking down on, on prescribers now. But 
does that mean that the next drug that's habit forming or dangerous or whatever that's pushed by a different pharmaceutical company in slightly different ways and in slightly different markets is not mm -hmm. going to happen? No, it doesn't. Which so we got to be careful with that. The solution is probably more s systemic than exactly you know, going That's after instead of putting out these individual fires changing right. the entire system by which is the nationalization so i get why it's not yeah. palatable i know yeah. like i get why but, people don't want to absolutely do the, that but the trend politically has been going toward um you know mm -hmm. medical medicare for all uh universal health care yeah. Because of this, because the the system is so flawed. And so many issues. Yeah, and yeah. it's so hard to access healthcare, and it's so expensive to ha access healthcare, and uh, the pharmaceutical companies often don't have the patient's best interest at heart if they're putting money over, um, you know, the health of. Nor do insurance companies. Absolutely honestly. not. Absolutely like, not. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Mm -hmm. But and we honestly, we should do an episode on um, because a friend of mine works on healthcare policy and developing it. You know, she has a master's from Columbia in. Oh, she should interview her. Health. She's down for yeah, it. Yeah, I think public health because she um, she's given me some breakdowns of numbers that I don't understand well enough to to spew them. But um, and then her boyfriend actually works for Bernie Sanders's. Uh, campaign and for his headquarters. Oh yeah, so, baby. Kind of like breaking down what the different plans would look like in five years, ten years, rebutting people's arguments about like, but what about wait times and things like mm -hmm. that? Because I, I do have questions, but I don't. Absolutely. I know that what we're doing is not working. <laughs> and consistently getting worse, it feels like. Right, um, right. So is there anything else that we, what else do we need to cover in this, on this end? I don't, I think that's pretty much it. With the asterisk that like, we should talk more at length in future about um, how we should fix it because essentially mm -hmm. what my bottom line is, and I think what both of our bottom lines are, is that this is a big problem and it, it was a huge problem. It continues to be a big problem that is evolving, but um, it's a problem with the system. It's yeah. not something that you can deal with piecemeal by um, suing Walmart equivalents. Because sue Walmart to your heart's content, honestly. Sue Walmart. You can sue Walmart for looking at you wrong. I don't care. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Sue Walmart. Yeah. All right, folks. Walmart looked at me funny and I hate them. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, like underpays employees and is a shitty corporation. Sexist. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, uh, underpay women versus men, too. Sells products that are uh, produced by slave labor. So lots of practices. Yep. Mm -hmm. Lots of bad things about Walmart. Lots oh, of reasons yeah. to hate Walmart. Top um, candidate for hatred. But yes. Yeah, so um, like we said at the beginning, hit up our Patreon because we're currently brewing cool stuff and January will be the first month for some of that to go into effect. Please be patient with us if we're a little bit dumb with how to set everything up. But we I are going to figure it. it out, but we are... We are trying. And we love smart. you so much for being with us. We're not street smart. smart. We're not street smart. And Patreon is the mean streets of the internet <laughs> game of the free market. Patreon.com slash exceedingly persuasive. You can always reach us, you know, personally, if you have any questions, comments, mm -hmm. concerns. Uh, my Twitter is at BKE Rogers. My Instagram where you can message me is Brooke Angeline. Uh, we also have a, a Gmail that we have checked before that we check occasionally yeah. uh exceedingly persuasive at gmail.com just send us a message on instagram we're more reachable there 
Yeah, honestly, Instagram is great um, because I'm still in the process of detoxing from my Twitter retreat. I mostly see Twitter screenshots that people post on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And there you can find me at MKZ Joy Brennan. Um, I'll maybe come back to Twitter once I'm mentally stable. We'll see. Well, don't hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Uh, all right, Brooke's going to pay her medical bill now. <laughs> also don't hold kidding. your breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Bye. Yeah. Happy 2021. We made it, you little bitches. We did it. <laughs> <laughs>